When we think of how much God loves us and the ways that he has, can, can I just put it in human terms maybe, the, the lengths to which he has gone to express his love to us, not just in history, but as you and I were sleeping last night, we were the recipients of his love in a thousand different ways that we're unconscious of. When we got up this morning, you were chasing the kids around the house trying to get them dressed and they were knocking over the chocolate milk and the dog was barking and all that stuff was going on and you, know, you just think, oh, you're just, it's just another day, I'm just getting through life. We so often miss completely in the, either the mundaneness of life or the chaos of life how much we are loved. And why would anybody reject that kind of love? So that's an easy question for me to stand up here and ask because it sounds like I'm talking about other people who reject his love. But if we want to get really real about it, the truth is you and I still, at different points along the way, struggle with this problem of rejecting God. When sin came into the world, it brought a devastating separation between us and God. And it put something into the heart of every man and woman, boy and girl. You can phrase it however you want to, but it boils down to this. God, don't tell me what to do. That is ingrained into the fallen heart of all of us. Some express that more openly and outwardly. Others just carry it quietly in their heart. But if we're honest, we have to say we, we all struggle at different times with submitting to the total rulership of God in every area of our life. Sin causes us to push him away. Oh, maybe 95% of our life he rules over, but we've all got those areas that we close off. We say, no, you're not having control of that. Folks, it is a battle for all of us. And we're going to see that today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. Now, last week we finished up Near the end of chapter 7, Samuel had just preached God's word to these rebellious people. They confessed their sin. They offered sacrifice to God. They destroyed their idols. And while all that was going on, the Philistines came to attack them, and God miraculously delivered them from the hand of the Philistines by sending this uh, enormous thunder that came and confused the Philistines and, and drove them off. And chapter 7 closes, it would just pick up the last few verses there, chapter 7, uh, verse 15, it closes by saying, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Verse 16, every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, because his home was there, and there he judged Israel and built an altar to the Lord. Now those sound like somewhat boring historical statements, but let's not miss the, the beauty in 
those three verses. Those words are a picture of incredible faithfulness over a long period of time. Now, here's what we struggle with because we're all made of the same stuff. We all pretty much struggle with the same things. It's easy for someone to be faithful in the short term. It's easy for someone to say, yes, I'm going to show up next Sunday. I'm going to serve in this area and they'll be faithful there. But what about the next month and the next year? What about when they get tired of it? What about when life is heavy and other things happen? And you see, faithfulness over a long period of time is a rare quality. Someone asked me once, Phil, what can I, how, how can I pray for you specifically as a pastor? What can I ask God on, uh, for on your behalf? And I said, longevity. Because it's just rare. You see, blips on the radar screen of life. People come and make a big splash and a big noise. And then a year later, five years later, 10, 20 years later, you go, hey, how's things going with so-and-so? Oh, you didn't hear? These closing verses there of 1 Samuel chapter 7 seem like rather boring statements. But I'm telling you, and that's not our focus today, but I just couldn't skip over that and move right on to chapter 8 without just commenting. There's beauty in those words. There's beauty there in seeing that Samuel was faithful to the Lord all the days of his life. But we followed Samuel now since he was born. His mother, Hannah, couldn't have children. She prayed for years and years that God would give her a son. She promised to give that son back to the service of the Lord for his entire life. And when Samuel was born and he grew up a little bit and was a little boy, she took him to the temple, to the uh, tabernacle, and he began sort of learning the service of a priest. He grew up there. And Samuel was the only one listening to the voice of the Lord in those days, we're told. And we saw him obediently deliver a very difficult message to Eli the priest, even as a fairly young lad. We watched him as he consistently spoke the word of the Lord to Israel at a time when their hearts were far from God and they didn't want to hear it. Samuel has spent his entire life now following God. And it's against that backdrop that the verses of chapter 8 are so excruciatingly painful to read. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so there's Samuel's first heartache that we see. He has faithfully served the Lord all the days of his life, but his sons have gone astray. And as a parent, I don't have to tell you the worst thing in the world is seeing a child who's turned from God. And no doubt this must have brought Samuel incredible agony and heartache as a parent. But sadly, there's a second crushing heartache that now comes to Samuel, starting in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, 
you are old. Well, that's, that's just a great way to kick off a conversation. <laughs> Tact and diplomacy were probably not high on the resume of these guys. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Did he really need to hear that? That's just like a second knife jab. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Verse 6, but this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now it may not be obvious from this first statement that we've read here about what the elders said to him, but this must have really wounded Samuel on a personal level. Rejection is one of the worst feelings that people have to wrestle with in life. Rejection, it's just brutal. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Or we just don't want you anymore. Man, it's painful. And this is what they're saying to Samuel. It says Samuel was displeased. By this, but if we if we peek ahead to verse seven, God uses specific wording to uh, to reassure Samuel. Why? Because Samuel needs reassurance, and it shows us that Samuel definitely was feeling personally rejected by this. If you look at verse seven, it says, "And the Lord said to Samuel, basically, here's the, here's what I want to focus on right now in that verse. God said to him, "Hey Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me." And why did God need to tell Samuel that? Because Samuel felt rejected. And God is comforting him and reassuring him, saying, hey, buddy, listen, it's really not about you. They're not against you. It's me that they're rejecting. So Samuel is, is no doubt feeling like he's being tossed aside. And think about it. After, after all his years of faithful service to these people, lovingly, and boldly preaching the truth of God to them, helping them with their problems day after day after day, putting up with all their foolishness. And boy, we've, we've read some. The people are basically saying, we don't want you to lead us anymore. We're done with you. We want someone new. So this must have felt like a real betrayal. This must have felt like a real knife in the back to Samuel. But I want you to notice what he did. How did Samuel respond to this? Did he fire off a Facebook campaign and start saying nasty things about these guys and pointing out all their weaknesses and failures? No. Verse 6, the end of it there, did you catch it? And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And I think in that little phrase, in that one little statement, we catch a glimpse of one of the secrets to Samuel's long track record of faithfulness. Of course, he was upset by the news, but he didn't sit around and stew in it for weeks on end, nor did he try to deal with this on his own. He took it to God in prayer. Because you see, even though Samuel was personally hurt by this, he knew that this demand from the people was actually evidence of a much bigger issue, an issue that was way bigger than, than him. He, he clearly sees that the way that people are going about this is wrong. He knows that their motives are impure. He knows that their desire to be like all the other nations. By the way, that's a sermon in itself. Did you catch that? Give us a king to rule over so we can be like all the other nations. I mean, that's a trigger statement right there 
for anybody who's following God. Because that, that statement is a direct violation of God's command and covenant to his people. He specifically called them to be separate from the other nations. Not to hate the nations, but to be different, to be distinct, to be holy, to be set apart. And again, Christians, I'll tell you what I've told you before. That's not a call for us to be weirdos. Okay, We don't need to try to be weird. Just follow God. Live your life. You'll be weird enough in the eyes of the world. Don't add to it. Okay, We don't need to all cut our hair the same or wear the same clothes or... That's nonsense. Those are cults. God had clearly called his people to live separate from the world. So what's really behind this demand from the people? What, what's really triggering this? Well, since that great revival back in chapter 7 and that great victory over their enemies... What we need to realize is that between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, many years have gone by. And with the passage of time comes change. A new generation of people were now taking the stage, and it's quite likely that this current generation of adults were children back in chapter 7 when God brought about that revival and that miraculous victory over the Philistines. Maybe... They were clutching their mommy's skirt at the time when that thunder rolled uh, across the, the heavens. Maybe they were terrified, and, and maybe they were there witnessing that mighty move of God with their own eyes. They certainly heard their parents and other people talk about it over the years. But sadly, this new generation was suffering from a terrible sickness called spiritual amnesia. The roaring thunder of God that had driven away the Philistines was now nothing more than a distant whisper. The lesson that had been learned in chapter 7 was, in repentance and prayer, we have an unseen king who can scatter the mightiest military powers. That should have been all they needed to know. They trusted in God back then, but now... They've forgotten all that he's done for them, and they're not looking to him anymore. Now, here's a key point. It's not that they're completely doing away with God. It's just that they want to replace him with someone of their own choosing. And that is an important and dangerous distinction. Sometimes we point fingers at atheists for denying God. But we fail to see that in our own heart, there are places where we want to reject God and deny him and replace him. I jotted this down this week. Atheists reject God by denying his existence. Christians reject God by substituting him with other things. And that's what these people are doing. They're, they're not getting rid of God entirely. They just don't want him ruling over them. They want a God they can see. They want a God they can get their hands around, whether it's an idol they can fashion into whatever shape they want, or whether it's a, a person that they can manipulate and intimidate and influence and control to some degree. Why? Because it all comes down to this. They don't want to live under God's control. They want to control their own lives. They're really saying... 
We still want God to bless us and protect us and provide for us and take care of us. We just don't want him telling us how to live. So let's get our own king of our own choosing. And well, if we, if we think about how much that rejection hurt Samuel, just imagine how much it hurt God. <clears throat> we see in the Bible that there are times when the sinfulness of man is so great, like Genesis 6, that it grieves the heart of God. You ever tried to get your mind around that? Our sin is so offensive and so hurtful. Forgive me if I'm not putting this in, in proper terms. I'm human. I'm very limited in my ability to describe all this. But it's a, it's a picture of God sitting on his throne, weeping, brokenhearted. God had gone out of his way to care for these people. But even after all that, they still want a different king. God refers to this in verse 8 of 1 Samuel he said, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, which was now hundreds of years before, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So, Samuel, they're doing to you also. God had clearly established himself as their king when he led them out of Egypt under the bondage of Pharaoh. And sadly, this incident here in 1 Samuel 8 wasn't the first time they tried to replace God as their king. Back when we were in the book of Judges, and one of the people we talked about was Gideon. Gideon won that massive victory uh, for, for the people, and Judges 8.22 tells us this. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, Gideon messed a couple of things up towards the end of his life, but boy, he got that right. Gideon saying, guys, don't go looking for another king. You have a king, the Lord of heaven. You will never have a better king than him. Don't go poking around looking for someone else to take God's place because you're going to regret it. The Lord is the one who needs to rule over you. That was the agreement. That was the covenant that God would be their God and they would be his people. They were to have only one king, and that was God. And this rejection of him as their king was not a small thing. In fact, it was so offensive to God that this decision by the people reverberates for a long time into the future. Here are a few quick examples just to kind of show you how this, the echo of this terrible decision continues to, to sort of bounce through the future. 1 Samuel 10, 19. Now this is later on here. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. And you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Chapter 12, verse 17, you will know and see what a great evil you have committed in the sight of the Lord by asking for a king. So how does God respond to this demand from his people? We saw how Samuel responded. He went to God in prayer. How does God respond? Well, it's, a, it's astounding to me, and I heard a little bit of, of it this morning from, from Jaron, 
who worded that so well, it's astounding to me that God didn't just wipe them off the face of the earth and go, you know what? I'm just so done with this. Isn't that how we are sometimes? So tired of putting up with you. So tired of this. Just done. I mean, I never do that, but I hear that y'all have sometimes. It's incredible to me that God doesn't just obliterate them. Now, God does teach them a painful lesson. And as parents, we know sometimes the best thing we can do is to let our children suffer the consequences of their choices. It's not because we're being cruel. It's actually the opposite. And so God doesn't abandon his people, but he allows them to learn a very important lesson. And God responds in a way that I don't think we would have expected, and I don't even think Samuel expected. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. What? And this is what we read earlier, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them or from reigning over them. And then God repeats this in verse 9. Now, therefore, listen to them, but you must solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will rule over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. God told Samuel, I'm not going to wipe them out, but instead I want you to give them what they want. I, I just would love to have been peeking into this scene from, from the side to see Samuel's facial expression. You want me to what? You want me to give them what they want? But God, it's in direct violation of your covenant with them, your relationship with them. Now, go ahead, Samuel. Go ahead. Give them what they want. But in his infinite love, God doesn't just throw his people to the wolves. He says, yes, give them what they want, but first, warn them. Give them one more chance. Warn them exactly what they're about to get themselves into. Verse 11. And God said, boy, now this, is, this kind of language may not mean a lot to us today. Th these next few verses, this is quite a drastic warning that they're getting here. And God said, this will be the manner of the king who will reign over you. Now listen to how many times the word take is mentioned in these next few verses. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Verse 12, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants." Verse 18, and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now be careful with this. God's not saying, I will never listen to you again. He says, in that day, at that moment in time, when you wake up and realize the mess you've gotten yourselves in, and you come running to me, I'm not going to listen to you right away. Because sometimes time is the best teacher. And what we see here in painfully clear detail is that sometimes in life, 
The worst possible thing that could happen to us is for us to actually get what we want. Now, I'm not recommending this as a parenting technique, but I heard many years ago of a very young teenage boy who was caught smoking by his father. His father went out and bought an entire carton of cigarettes, locked his son in the closet, and made him stay in there and smoke every single one of them before he let him out. Probably get arrested for that nowadays, but I'm guessing uh, the guy got a taste of something that he really didn't want to be involved in. These people are saying, we no longer want to live under God's laws. We don't want to obey his rules. We want to be free. But it's amazing, somehow, even after all God's goodness, somehow they still don't realize that living within God's boundaries, living within his laws, is actually the very thing that brings freedom and joy and blessing and protection. It's when we choose to live outside the guidelines and boundaries God has established that we then expose ourselves to the worst imaginable pain and sorrow and heartache and loss. Can anybody testify to that? A little child might think that his parents' rule of not playing in the middle of the street is cruel and unkind and confining and restrictive. But if he chooses to step outside of that boundary and go play in the middle of traffic, what he thinks is a newfound freedom will likely cost him his life. These Israelites want to be free from God's laws. And God says, okay, you can do that. But listen, it's going to cost you everything. And what I think we miss is When God gave them what they wanted, it was ultimately an act of judgment on God's part. The old saying is true. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Sometimes what you'll discover is wrapped inside the thing you most wanted is the due punishment for that very thing. This is a principle that runs throughout the Bible. The New Testament tells us about certain people who do exactly what these Israelites are doing here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They exchange the truth of God for their own personal desires. I don't know of any better place than Romans chapter 1 to turn to for this. It gives us a clear picture of what's taking place all those years before. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made so that men are without excuse. Verse 21. Now this is heartbreaking here. For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. 
and exchanged, here we go now, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, they're, they're making idols. Now, let me pause here for a second. These are people who want to replace God for other things, things of their own choosing, things of their own making. And how does God respond to them? Oh boy. Verse 24, Romans chapter 1. Therefore God gave them up. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged, there it is again, the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, and then it goes on to describe some of those vile passions. Skip to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not proper. And then again, it lists some, some of those things that are improper and unfitting. So how does God respond to those people who knowingly reject him? For other things, verse 24, he gave them up. Verse 26, he gave them up. Verse 28, he gave them over. Now, I don't know about you, but those are some of the most disturbing, frightening verses in the whole Bible to me. To what, though, did God give them up? To what did God give them over? Well, he didn't have to dream up punishment for them. He simply let them feel the consequences of their own choices. Because the painful consequences of God's judgment are built into sin. We're going to feel them. He gave them up. He handed them over to suffer the destructive consequences of the very things they demanded the freedom to pursue. You know, I can't help but referring you back to our studies in Genesis. How I've pointed this out many times, that there God set the foundation, the boundaries, that you and I should never venture across. In the very beginning, he put those boundaries in place not to be restrictive, not to be unkind, not to make us miserable, but to keep the people he loved and treasured from wandering off into things that would ultimately destroy them. These Israelites said, man, we, we, we don't want to live by God's rules anymore. It's a new generation. We've got to embrace new things. Not those old milestones set up by our fathers and grandfathers. We want to be free to live like all the other nations do. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted. But along with it came emptiness and grief and heartache and trouble their desire to be free from God is the very thing that enslaved them. Remarkable irony. It reminds me of Psalm 106, verse 13. Boy, you want to hear some chilling words. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They craved intensely in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. So what did God do? He gave them what they asked for. Oh, yippee. Uh-oh. But he sent leanness into their soul. 
My word. Leanness into their soul. But before God let that happen to any of them, as I said, he, he tried to warn them. We saw in verses 11 to 18, all those horrible, painful, costly things that would happen to them if they demanded their own king. And you'd think after hearing a list like that, the people would would pause and go, whoa, whoa, wait, guys, let's rethink this. But instead, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And you want to grab these people by the lapel and shake them and go, are you crazy? Isn't that exactly what God just did for you in chapter 7? Don't you remember how God as your king defeated the Philistines without you even having to lift a finger? How sad this is. Chapter 7, God brings a great revival to the people and miraculously saves them from their enemies. Chapter 8, the next generation rejects that very God as their king. It's like a suicide mission. And I point out again, it's, it's important to know, they weren't rejecting God's you know, blessings and provision. They weren't rejecting the fact that he saved them out of bondage in Egypt. They were rejecting his rule and authority over them. Don't miss this. They wanted him as their savior, but they didn't want him as their king. God said, they've rejected me from reigning over them. That was the problem. That was the real problem. They wanted God's blessings, but they didn't want his authority. And the danger for us this morning, here in 2021, in a supposedly civilized society, the danger for us is we must be very careful sitting in here this morning not to distance ourselves from those people and what they did. Because although this happened about 3,000 years ago, it's still the same problem today. Church pews, listen, church pews are filled with people who want Jesus as their Savior, but they don't want Him as their Lord. Filled. They want him to be in charge of their eternity, but they don't want him to be in charge of their life. So let me ask you this morning, who's your king? No, I mean, no, not, not the Christianese answer, not the churchy answer. Who's your king? Who calls the shots in your life? On those big decisions? On those little decisions? In those moments when no one's around? Your responses to people? Your thoughts about people? Who's your king? I'll tell you that if you've pushed God aside to follow the ways of any other king, you'll eventually discover what a cruel taskmaster that king will be. Uh, I, could, I could recount story after story after story of people I've talked to over the years. I've lovingly pleaded with them, please 
Don't go down this path, please. Oh, no, it's fine. Everything's going fine. Okay, call me in a year, two years, five years, and update me on that. Because it won't be going fine then. God lovingly allowed his people to discover this the hard way. They got a real nasty taste of just how harsh and unkind and foolish and unloving earthly kings can be. And we're going to see that starting next Sunday as we look at, um, I think it's chapter 9 through 15 next week is where we are in the life of Saul. God used this to teach them, listen, that there's only one king. Don't miss this. There's only one king in whom they can fully, unquestionably place their trust. There is only one king who is able to lead them in perfect love and perfect justice. There's only one king who ultimately lay down his life for them. And they're setting him aside to go their own way. Oh, they're fools. They're crazy, we say. But I would caution us this morning to examine our lives, examine our heart, examine our motives, and see if we're not doing the same thing. Who's your king? Is it your heart's desire to say, Lord, I don't just want you ruling over my eternal destiny. I want you ruling over my todays. I want you to rule over all my decisions, all my plans, all my thoughts, all my dealings, all my relationships, all my motives, all my ambitions. I want you to be my king. May that be our desire. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. I want to see